Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone, and welcome to New Books Network. I'm Galina Limorenko, doctoral candidate in neuroscience with a focus on biochemistry and molecular biology of neurodegenerative diseases at Pepper in Switzerland, and I will be your host today. Today, we'll be talking to David Greer about the new book, Successful Leadership in Academic Medicine. Good leadership in medicine is crucial, but unfortunately, often woefully inadequate. Readers will learn how to work within a team, manage unforeseen crises, and to embrace mistakes as opportunities for growth. David, welcome to the show. Thank you. So how are you? How is your week? Uh, Well, I'm I'm doing great, thanks. My week has been uh, exciting, uh, but that's kind of the normal around here. So thanks for asking. Excellent. So can you tell us, what do you do? So I am uh, the professor and chairman of neurology at Boston University uh, School of Medicine and Boston Medical Center, obviously in Boston. And um, I, uh, I wear multiple hats in my job. I am a clinician first and foremost. I care about patients uh, very much. I'm a neurointensivist, meaning I take care of patients who are very sick with neurological disease in the intensive care setting. And I'm a strokeologist, I would say. That's somebody who takes care of patients who've uh, had a stroke or cerebrovascular disease. So that's what I do clinically. And I'm also a teacher and love to teach residents, medical students, fellows, junior faculty, and mentorship is very near and dear to my heart. Uh, So that's hat number two that I wear. I'm a researcher as well. And I particularly enjoy studying coma cardiac arrest, prognostication, and brain death, you know, all the happy topics, right? And then as the chair of my department, I'm also a uh, administrator, if you will, or a leader within my group. And that's a, a very fun and, and uh, important hat for me to wear also to be able to have a really positive impact on the lives of others through leadership has been something that's become very near and dear to my heart. And I would say the the fifth hat that I wear, which should probably be the first hat, is that I'm a, a father and a husband and a, and a family man, 
first and foremost and uh, very dedicated to my family. So that's, that's what I do on a day-to-day basis. Oh, wow. I hope you have a big hat uh, stand in your cloakroom. <laughs> exactly, right. In multiple shapes of my hats. And what got you interested in uh, studying medicine? Well, uh, that's a great question. So I, uh, I, w- I would say that I was exposed to it from a very early age. My father was a neurologist and he was actually the chairman of a department of neurology as well. Uh, and just a, a huge figure in my life. And my two brothers who are eight and nine, eight and nine years older than I am, they, they also went into medicine, one into rheumatology and the other into psychiatry. And so there was a lot of medicine in our house and a lot of the, the dinner conversations at our house, uh, much to my mother and sister's consternation, uh, centered around uh, medicine and, and uh, understanding how the brain works in particular, but also all the things that were, were and are wonderful about the medical field. So that, that made it very, uh, um, uh, very much part of my fabric growing up, if you will. And in your journey, in your career journey, did you have mentors that really supported you and, and inspired you along the way? Uh, did, did, yeah, I think you said, do I have, did I have mentors? Is that correct? Yeah, so I, I would say my father was, was clearly a very uh, uh, powerful mentor in my life. Uh, it's, it's weird to think, think of your own parent as a mentor, but certainly probably there's nobody better than that that would care more about you. But I, I really, I would say I had a dearth of mentors um, coming up once I, once I entered the field of medicine and, and left the nest of home. Um, and I, I think that's something that hurt me quite a bit, to be honest with you. I had some people that really did have a very powerful impact in my life, but they weren't the people that necessarily you would have thought uh, that would help you. In other words, there were people that were outside of my own institution that ended up being the most helpful and people that took me under their wing uh, that didn't have to, or that wasn't like a clear assigned role. And that mentorship came, came late in my career and, and, and probably would have made a very big impact on me had it come earlier. And so that's actually one of the things that's made me very conscious about providing mentorship for, for people early in their career and making sure that people who are in positions to mentor do so, <laughs> that they realize that it's part of their job and that it's important and that they're responsible to people. Sometimes people can be in a, a leadership position and, and not think that mentorship is really part of their list of duties, but it's, it's really at the, at the very top of the list. And what would you say to our student listeners and early career researchers? I would say to students and early career researchers to seek out mentorship often and um, seek it out in, in every corner and, and realize that you may not and probably should not find that one great mentor. Everybody's looking for that great sage on the hill that they go to to find inner peace. And it's a, uh, it's a bit of a fool's errand uh, that that person really doesn't exist. And, and now there's a lot more mentorship by committee, that it's actually very good to get diverse opinions from multiple mentors and sometimes even to coordinate them, especially if you're a researcher, to have meetings with all of your mentors together in order to get cohesive advice 
or, or, or even get them to argue with each other about what's the right course of action. But don't feel like you have to put all of your eggs in one basket and you can you know, seek out the advice of many different people. And, and, and usually people that get asked uh, to, uh, to, to mentor you, they'll be flattered. Some, some may be too busy and, and you have to let them off the hook when that's the case. Um, and you also have to realize when it's not working out because someone may seem like a great mentor on paper, but then for whatever reason, you get in the same room with them and you don't have good chemistry. So it's almost kind of like going on a blind date that everything might've sound pretty good until you went on the date and then you realize that you really couldn't communicate effectively with the person. And so the same thing can apply with mentorship just because it seems like it should be good. doesn't always work out and you have to be able to walk away from it as well when that's the case. Sometimes you can't walk away from the mentorship because they're, you know, your direct supervisor uh, that you're kind of stuck with them. And then you just have to continue to try to make it work and be uh, very open and honest about what's working and what's not working. And hopefully you can grow the relationship together and make it uh, a fruitful one. And your latest book is Successful Leadership in Academic Medicine. So how did you come to writing it? Well, that's a funny story. Um, I, um, I, I would say that I had some kind of a, uh, a moment of clarity and I was, uh, I was on Facebook and I decided to, and I don't know why, but for, for whatever reason, I decided to put down 10 leadership principles and maybe it was just something that was on my mind. And for whatever reason, I wanted to share it, uh, with other people. And they were just kind of common sense things, uh, being practical uh, about how to uh, be an effective leader. Maybe it was because at the time I was seeing examples of not so great leadership or people that just weren't being practical in how they were leading. And I thought, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna put these thoughts down on paper uh, or the Facebook equivalent of paper, which is electronic, <laughs> obviously. And it got a huge response uh, of uh, people who I know, They they, they started, you know, commenting on this, like, this is really great. And I hadn't thought about this. And, and this is something I'll really take into my practice. And I was thinking, really, <laughs> this all seems pretty straightforward to me, but I was really happy that people responded uh, in such a positive way. And I, you know, I keep in touch with a lot of my former residents and even students on Facebook. I think Facebook can be a source of evil, but for me, I've really turned it into a tool of good that you you know, try to focus on the positive things. And that's exactly what that post was about, was really trying to share something really positive and inspiring for people. And a number of my residents uh, commented and said, you should write a book, you should write a book. And I laughed it off initially. And then I was thinking, gosh, well, maybe I should write a book. Um, and so I'd, I'd worked on a few medical books with the Cambridge University Press. And I was in the throes of doing one on neuroprognostication uh, at the time, and I um, really liked the publisher um, a lot, and I reached out to my contact at Cambridge University Press, and I said, would you consider a book on successful leadership in academic medicine? Uh, and it's uh, Anna Whiting is her name, and, and she said, well, that's interesting. Uh, send us a proposal, and so I drafted a proposal, and they liked it a lot, and then we were off to the races, and it was... Uh, a heck of a lot of fun to write. So for sure, this book was definitely needed in the field. 
So yeah, let's... it's a little shocking. <laughs> it was shocking to me that nothing existed, and you know they were asking me what's a what's a competition book or. And I really couldn't come up with anything, to be honest with you. I had to I had to think about leadership books that are in other fields, but there's nothing in medicine like it. So maybe maybe uh, I'll start a movement. Who knows? <laughs> All right. So let's dive into the book. And can we start with the basics? So could you explain why is leadership important in academic medicine? Well, I think leadership is important really in any field, but medicine itself is, uh, is incredibly hierarchical. Um, and so there's an expectation that people will lead when you, you know, go through the ranks, you're a med student and you're an intern and you're a resident and you're junior faculty all the way on up. And so you can see that there are multiple layers and then there are layers beyond that. So there are uh, residency program directors, there are vice chairs, there are chairs, there are deans, there are and now that we're in a healthcare field as a business and you've got chief medical officers, you've got um, deans and, and, uh, and COOs and CEOs and presidents, and it's very difficult to know who does what. Um, and understanding what group you're responsible for and how to lead them effectively and, and also how to manage up, meaning that uh, whatever your position is, you always answer to somebody. Even the dean answers to the president of the of the university, and the president of the university answers to the trustees of the university. So there's always somebody above you, and so learning to manage up and manage down is is extremely important. If it were just about uh, academics, uh, you'd still need effective leadership, but it wouldn't be nearly as complicated. You could focus on education and research a bit. But now that it's a more of a business, it's really important to understand the dollars and cents uh, behind things. And so there's a, a saying in medicine and probably in other fields also, but no money, no mission. So everything now costs money, no matter where you are. Some places may have more money than others, but understanding the finances behind how things work and what the motivations are for people as they do their education, their clinical work, their, their research, that's, that has to be in your mind uh, somewhere. Uh, you can have a really, uh, I'll use the word bad in quotes, ineffective leader uh, who doesn't, maybe doesn't have the right experience or the right motivations. And they can really do a disservice, not only to the group that they're leading, but the constituents to whom they're responsible above them, uh, you know, if I got hired as a chair and I did a lousy job, I'm not only letting down my department, but I'd be letting down the institution and the medical school. And so you need good leaders that are able to see things uh, in multiple directions uh, and, and lead in a way that's effective uh, for everybody. Now within that structure, can everybody become a successful, effective leader? Well, I don't know if everyone can do it. Uh, you have to uh, want to lead and you have to have some understanding of what it takes to be a leader. And then you, even if you have those things, the desire and the understanding, there's the implementation also. So if your personality isn't one that is uh, well suited towards leadership for whatever reason, you might not be effective no matter what you do. And so uh, it, it really takes a, a hard look at oneself to understand you know, what you're bringing to the table, what the position is, 
whether you might be effective for that position, whether the position might be right for you, uh, and what are the potential traps. There's a lot that goes into it, and there's a lot of ways to slip up. So what kind of features should I be looking at, for example? Well, uh, you can look at features in yourself, or you can look at features in the job. And I would suggest that you need to do both. So when you look at yourself, the first question you have to ask is, why do I want to lead? <laughs> and it might be because you're an ambitious person and you want the quote fame and glory unquote that comes with it that are, trust me there's not a lot of fame and glory with it um but there's some and so it might be because you're ambitious it might be because uh you want a new challenge and you have the opportunity to grow and and climb the ladder if you will in a, in a way but it might better be because you want to make an impact, a positive impact, whether it be on people, which is the best thing, if you can have a positive impact on the people that you're leading, uh, or on the project that you're leading, that there's some end result of your leadership that's going to be really tangible uh, and important, and it's going to uh, change the field in some way that's positive. So I'll give you an example. If you're leading a research project on uh, curing cancer. <laughs> That's a very noble goal, right? And if you're able to achieve one part of that, uh, some uh, step along the ladder to curing cancer, uh, then that's great. But your, your leadership is what um, would motivate you to bring the team together. Who's working on what? How do we coordinate? How do we communicate with each other? How do we troubleshoot and navigate difficult uh, situations and, and adapt on the fly? So you have to think about why do you want to lead? What is the benefit that's going to happen in the future? And what kind of leader are you going to be? Uh, there are leaders that are top heavy, uh, that are about themselves. And then there are leaders who are bottom heavy, uh, that are what I call servant leadership, that you are there to serve the people that you are leading, that it's not about you, it's actually about them. And that you would measure your success by the success of the group. That's the best kind of leadership, in my opinion, that if at the end of the day, if the group were successful and I got zero credit, that's fine. Then I've served my purpose. The group achieved its goal, and that's, that's what's great. Then looking at it from the job standpoint, well, this is where you have to be really careful. What job are you walking into? Are you going to be a, a chief resident? for example, and what does that mean? What kind of workload will it be? What kind of time commitment is there? Uh, what kind of support will you have? Um, if you're looking at a, a chair position or a dean position or a vice chair position, same questions come up. What kind of, what kind of skill set is required uh, and what kind of um, time commitment is required? Do you have the time to commit to that uh, will you have the support, the resources, whether it's financial or it's person power or it's equipment or whatever, will you have the resources to be uh, effective? Uh, is the job the right time and the right place for you, um, both physical place, but also academic place? Is it the right fit? And so, you know, there's, there's a lot of discussion about the word fit. And I, and I actually like the word fit because you can actually make it fit into mm. many different things. But some of it is a little bit of a gestalt. Does this actually feel right? Do I think I can do this? Do I like the people? Do I feel like I resonate with them? 
Do I like the energy? Is this a project that I feel like my skill set is well suited to? So those are some of the things that would go into your thinking about, you know, is it right for me? Is it right for them? Does it work on both directions? Okay, so let's say that uh, I decided to be a lead, become a leader. So that that's fine with me. So how would I go about building a team? Well, uh, there's a, there's a number of things that can go into how you build a team. Uh, you need to be careful because the trap is that you'll build a team that is very much like you. Uh, that it's very easy to get. Uh, uh, a lot of people around you who like you and who are going to be agreeable to what you want to do. That's natural. That's human nature, right? That we, we like to be around people that you can work well with together, that you share common viewpoints. But th there's a trap in that, that if you get a bunch of yes people uh, that are just going to be sycophants and say, oh, you know, that's a great idea, Dave, but we should do that. That sounds really good. You, you, that you might miss the boat. You, you actually need some people that are going to give you diverse opinions and that can disagree with you and can give you uh, honest feedback uh, and maybe in ways that you uh, might hear it a little bit uncomfortably and that's okay. I actually encourage seeking out those, those pressure points where it's actually, if it's controversial or it's difficult, then you don't shy away from those. You look at those as opportunities. You're like, that's, that's how we're actually going to separate ourselves by tackling the really difficult issues um, uh, and, and, and challenging each other. I find that the groups that work best together are the ones that uh, can have a really open, honest conversation where everybody realizes it's not personal, mm. that you're all working towards a goal. Uh, this is not to say that people should start yelling at each other in meetings, far from it. But having a healthy conversation uh, where people are free to disagree uh, and do so in a respectful way um, that uh, the diversity of opinion is encouraged and is seen to be beneficial for the group, that's a really good group when you can get to that. It, it all sounds a bit utopian, what I'm describing, and but it can be achieved, but it takes work. You have to actually groom that. You have to have the meetings that don't go so well and then dissect them and say, you know, last meeting didn't go so well. Let's talk about that a little bit. Uh, what, why didn't we uh, have a fruitful discussion? Why didn't we, um, did anyone feel shut down for their opinions or we, were we unable to voice our opinions for fear of reprisal? Uh, I think that those are really the great groups and it's, it's kind of like a marriage. You've got to, you've got to work on it. You've got to reassess and you've got to continue to, uh, groom the relationship over time, even when you think that you've got it down, you, you still need to work on it. So I, I think that's what, what you can do as you're assembling your team is to get an early emphasis on diversity. And by diversity, I, I don't just mean a race, gender, ethnicity, background, et cetera, but diversity of opinion and openness of thought uh, and responsiveness. And what roles to um, identity, culture, and mission play within the team? Well, I would say that all of those are important and they're, they're all very different things. Uh, identity, I think, uh, and maybe you can clarify for me what you mean by this, but for me, identity is what do I bring to the table? Who, who am I uh, as an individual? 
and what are my strengths and what are my weaknesses. Identity could mean the identity of the team. And that is an amorphous thing. That means that you could have, again, a, a multi-headed monster in a good way um, that is uh, developing its identity as a group and, mm -hmm. uh, and bonding in that way. Or the identity could be around the, the mission, which I'll get to uh, last. Uh, culture is a really important word. Uh, and, you, and you have to define what you mean by it. Um, but we try to have a very positive culture here and a very inclusive culture, but also one that really calls out uh, the red lines very clearly. So when I, when I first got here at our first faculty meeting, I said, here, here are the red lines, just so we're all clear, we're all on the same page together, that I will not tolerate any form of discrimination or harassment Mm -hmm. uh, in this department. And um, that was a very, very important thing for people to hear, especially people who had been the victim of discrimination and harassment uh, and or harassment during their time. And when they saw that I actually uh, acted on that in a number of instances where I saw examples of discrimination and harassment, then the culture really grew. And people understood that the leader was putting his money where his mouth was. And it wasn't just talk, it was actually action. And people felt like it was a very protective environment then uh, where they could be themselves and not fear uh, uh, of others or the words of others. And so you have to work on the culture and you have to continually evaluate it and make sure that people feel that we're representing uh, the mutual uh, respect that we want to have uh, with each other and, and as a group identity. And then, and that's where the, the mission comes in. So the, I'm a big fan of, of mission statements and vision statements. I didn't, I wasn't always, <laughs> I, I used to poo-poo them and be like, oh, great, here's that conversation. Mm -hmm. but, uh, but I actually think it's really helpful. And we do it once a year in my department and say, okay, let's look at our mission statement from last year. Does this still resonate? Is this still who we uh, want to be? Uh, does this reflect our values? Uh, and it's kind of, um, for whatever reason, I, I, I always envision a beacon or some kind of light that everyone walks toward once a year. Maybe you'd call it Mecca or something like that, but it's, uh, okay, let's recalibrate. Let's look at the light again and say, okay, this is why we're doing this. This is, this is why we do everything that we do. It all comes back to our mission. And in our hospital, we're very mission oriented because we take care of an underserved population. So it's very easy to resonate around that, that providing care here is very meaningful. And we, we also emphasize diversity at every, um, every, every opportunity. And so it's easy to rally around those things if those things are important to you. But wherever you are, that you, you have to make sure that your mission resonates with the rest of the institution. And ours, ours certainly does here. And then the vision, if I may, uh, extends from your mission. The mission is who we are, what we believe in. Your vision is how you implement it. It's like, okay, that's who you are. What do you want to do? And when do you want to do it? How do you establish your benchmarks, your timelines, uh, your goals. People like to be goal-oriented. Um, I like to think that adults are like 
little kids. So we remain little kids. We all want to know what the edges of the sandbox are. Uh, we all want to know what we're striving towards uh, and where we're going. I think that helps people to feel either consciously or subconsciously uh, oriented towards uh, something, that they're always working towards something and that something should be a very positive thing. So then in this case, is there a value to putting your mission on the paper, for example, to have it like a written statement? Absolutely. And it's something that we, uh, we, we have as a two-page document in our department. Can't be too long, can't be too, too short. Uh, so I would say one to two pages, but put it down on paper. Um, when we uh, established our mission and vision statement here, we vetted it uh, very extensively. It went through many iterations and we had our leaders within our department review it many, many times before it went out to the, the rest of the department. And then we had open discussion about it and made sure everyone had an opportunity to critique it or to groom it or to shape it in some way. And then once we had done all that, uh, symbolically, we actually signed it. We had the leadership of the department sign it. I like to call it the Declaration of Interdependence. <laughs> You've heard in the U.S. of the Declaration of Independence. I like the Declaration of Interdependence, that we are actually all dependent on each other to achieve these goals. No one person, uh, whether it's the leader uh, or, or someone else, uh, no one person can be responsible or, or move this uh, on their own. And so we, we all have to be uh, in it together. So that's why we symbolically took a pen and, and signed it. Now, there were some leaders that were like, are you really going to make me sign this? And I said, mm -hmm. yes, absolutely. I think it's important. And so there were some reluctant signers. You know, you got to ask yourself why that is. But I think the act of signing made them actually physically buy into it some way that they might not have done uh, otherwise. Uh, so I love the symbol symbolism of that moment. That was a real uh, uh, resonant day for me. Okay, so let's say that we built our team. So my next question relates to meetings. So you already mentioned uh, something about it, but um, especially in academia and uh, I suppose in medicine as well, the meetings quite often are the contentious part and many people think that it's a waste of time and uh, something like that. So how do you run a successful meeting? Right, uh, so... Uh... Most of us, if not all of us, have been in unsuccessful meetings, and I would say that unsuccessful meetings are the norm. Uh, I find that the best meetings are when people are truly engaged, that they don't feel like they're wasting time, that they trust one another, uh, and that they're, they're goal-oriented, that they're, it's very clear what you're working towards. Now, you heard all four of those things, and you're thinking to yourself, well, yeah, that's pretty obvious. But how often have you seen a meeting that actually does that or a series of meetings with a group that actually does that? It's really quite rare. Um, and I think that the, the ability to have effective meetings has been hurt by uh, our electronic world that we meet so much now over uh, Zoom or other platforms and people you know, darken their screens and so you don't see their faces and and you don't even know if they're there, right? Um, 
I know you're there right now because you keep talking to me, but otherwise you just be a name up on the screen. And this is very damaging that uh, people don't engage. So I'm almost always telling people to put themselves on camera uh, so that we, we can see your engagement. Um, I find meetings more fun when I'm participating. So I tend to be one of the more vocal people in a meeting, which my family finds incredibly ironic because I'm actually a shy person and an introvert. But if I don't stay engaged and I don't ask questions and I don't um, give, give uh, input or comments, I'll be bored to tears. And so I know if that's the case for me, it's probably the case for a lot of people. So I don't want you to be a wallflower. I want you to speak up. And if you don't speak up, I'm going to call on you. You have to call out um, destructive dialogue, I'll call it. And I, I, I'll use the, the, the words, the, the no jerk rule, that if somebody's damaging with their comments, then you have to call that out also. And it goes back to what I said earlier about harassment uh, and disrespect. Uh, and there are ways to do that, that you've got to be able to do it in a way that's going to be constructive. But you're always looking out for macroaggressions and microaggressions too. And especially in today's world, you really have to call those out in the moment when people use an inappropriate uh, turn of phrase or they try to be humorous, but it's offensive. You, you, as a leader, you really have to call out those moments and make sure that um, people feel respected. Um, I think it's important also to have uh, a limit on the number of slides and the content of the slides as well. So there's this concept that everybody knows, the death by PowerPoint. That's very real. <laughs> that if you put up, as soon as you put up slides, everybody starts to move into uh, stage one or two of sleep. Uh, and so you have to be very careful. Make your slides engaging, make them few and far between, and then take them off the screen and have everybody be face to face and have a dialogue, have it be a con constructive conversation. Make sure the agenda is sent out ahead of time for your meeting and have the agenda uh, items listed as either informational or discussional. So information is I'm going to give you information. You can sit back and relax for five minutes as I present the problem to you, but I want you to listen. Discussion is, okay, what do you think? Now we're going to talk about this uh, and let's get everybody's input on this. This is a, a time for us to flesh this out and really get it going. As the leader, you need to be able to sit through that moment of silence, which is inevitable after you say, what do you think? that nobody wants to be the first one to talk, but you have to get used to that awkward pause. You have to be, you know, you have to wait it out. If I just fill the space with my words and nobody will talk, I'll dominate the conversation and that's not going to help anybody. And then the last thing I'll say about the effective meeting, uh, I think it's the last thing I'll say is, is walking out of the meeting with agreement on the next steps. Doesn't mean that you have a agreement about you've chosen the right thing to do. And there's a, a difference between agreement and consensus. A consensus means that everybody feels heard, even if there wasn't complete agreement, but you mm -hmm. said, okay, we're going to move on and do X, Y, or Z. But making sure that it's clear, you, you want to have some kind of a wrap up. And sometimes you'll send out minutes afterwards and you'll ask people to say, did I capture this right? Don't make the minutes too long. Make sure that it's something that's easily readable and digestible and that you can reflect back on. Uh, the, the really last thing I'll say is if you did have a difficult uh, interaction, make sure you circle back with the people who had counterproductive behaviors during the meeting and say, 
listen, Joe, or listen, Sally, that, that wasn't, that wasn't great in that meeting. That didn't really feel right. What, what were your impressions of it? What do you think we can do right next time? And do you feel like you can take any responsibility for why the, the meeting didn't go so well? So you have to call it out and you have to be able to help people to recognize their behavior, especially when it's uh, counterproductive. Okay. I'm putting these rules on my wall. <laughs> <laughs> great. All right, so now coming away from uh, the interpersonal relationships within the team and going to the level of institution. So what uh, are the ways that a successful leader can navigate all of these relationships that they have with the people who are higher up uh, in a hierarchical uh, way? Yeah, so that's a, a great question. Um, uh, one, one of the things you have to realize, especially in American system, is you, you often have a hospital that you're dealing with and you have a medical school that you're dealing with. It, it, it is often different in other countries, but I'll give you the, the U.S. example. So I have to align myself with the president of the hospital and with the dean of the medical school. And you have to realize that those people have uh, their own motivations and their own goals. And it is not an us versus them situation. You're not trying to get what you can out of them and you know fight for my piece of the pie. If you start going into those conversations feeling like it's a fight and you're on different sides of the coin, then you're, you're pretty much doomed to failure. Uh, maybe that's a little strongly worded, but you know what I mean. You're kind of, you may start off on the wrong foot and they may be able to help and correct you, but realize that they have their own motivations, just like you do. They have their own constraints, just like you do. They have limited resources. They may have a lot more resources than you do, but they may also have to share those resources with multiple departments or multiple constituencies. And so you, you should be sensitive to those things. What is really helpful is to align the goals. So me coming in as a neurologist saying, um, I, I would love for neurology be, to be successful here because it's going to fit in with the overall mission of the medical school that you want strong neuroscience. And that's going to be helpful to your students and to the mission of the hospital for these reasons. Uh, sometimes there's a monetary reason. I'm going to create a lot of downstream revenue by all the CAT scans and MRIs that, that we order, or we're going to do these procedures, or we're gonna generate these neurosurgeries, and that's going to be helpful for the bottom line of the hospital. Or for the medical school, it might be that we're doing this great neuroscience research, and it's bringing in a lot of grant funding, and we're publishing really important papers and great journals, and it's increasing the prestige of the university, and that's a good thing also. And making sure that they understand how uh, it's mutually beneficial that it's not just you asking for resources. It's the resources are going to go towards this program, which is going to make the university look better or make the hospital more successful or bring uh, higher ratings uh, through the U.S. News World Report or something like that, that uh, will help everybody overall. And so it's all about aligning your goals. What's going to be uh, good not only for you, but for the, the hospital in general or for the med school uh, altogether. And it, sometimes it's a matter of going over a spreadsheet and understanding what is the return on investment. Um, but I, I think that that can be one of the harder things that leaders 
have to do is to say, we're all on the same team here. We're all working towards the same goal. I'm making this sound very easy. Mm-hmm. And in actuality, it's not. Uh, that you will have ups and downs with your leaders. They are fallible, just like you. Just because somebody has gotten to be a dean or a president of a hospital does not mean that they're a great communicator. It does not mean that they're necessarily a great business person. It doesn't mean that they are uh, able to communicate effectively with you. So we're all human and realizing that even though you've climbed a ladder or they've climbed a ladder, you still have to be able to work together and communicate effectively. Um, that's surprising for a lot of people. They think, oh gosh, at, at that level, gosh, that person should be really amazing. And they may be amazing in some amazing ways, but they may be incredibly flawed in other ways. And don't, don't be surprised about that. Embrace it and realize that again, we're all humans and everybody's got their, their pros and cons. So another side of being a leader is the ability and necessity of managing crises. So what would be the good leader in these situations? Well, yeah, so that, that, that's really come up in the last few years, right? Especially in medicine with uh, dealing with the global pandemic, but you could look at other crises, uh, you know, um, economic crises, uh, uh, other healthcare crises. Um, and and, and it, I think it's very important, again, to to be an effective communicator uh, in times like that. Um, I, I think that people really look to their leaders during those times of stress. They want communication. Uh, a leader can feel uh, compelled or obligated to make everything better or have all the answers. And you don't always have all the answers and you can't always make it better. And sometimes it's just simply a matter of telling people what you know and what you don't know. Uh, and it's kind of like a, a medical diagnosis. Uh, the fear of the unknown can often be worse than the diagnosis itself. Mm-hmm. That sometimes it's just an understanding of what is the scope of the problem? How bad is it? And even if it's really bad, okay, now I know it's really bad. Uh, that, 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 that can be very helpful for people. And just keeping frequent communication. I think that that can be very helpful to get updates and you can communicate by a variety of mechanisms. It can be over email, a blast email to your whole department. It can be direct conversations to the group, a faculty meeting or meeting with the residents. Uh, it can be one-on-ones for people who are particularly struggling or with your leadership group. But I, I like to say you can't really over communicate. Um, when the pandemic hit, we were sending out weekly or bi-weekly emails And we realized that everybody wanted something a little bit different. We actually surveyed what was working and what was not working with our communications. And some people said, you know, we could use more words of encouragement or, you know, uh, positive things or or, uh, what what, what you might call the touchy-feely. And then some people would say, hey, enough of the touchy-feely. We just want the facts. (laughs) So you can't win, right? And so we would actually break it up into categories and say, Here's what we're doing operationally. Here's what's happening financially. Here's the touchy-feely section in case you want it or you don't want it. You can stop reading here if you don't like the touchy-feely stuff. So I think that that actually, in a humorous way, helped people to get the communication that they wanted that worked for them because, you know, everybody's different. And some people really 
hate that stuff. Uh, I, I think the other thing during a crisis is understanding the very real impact that these things can have on, ha can have on your mental health. Um, the, <coughs> excuse me, when I say that, I mean not only the mental health of the people within the group that are being affected, but your own. You have to realize again, as a leader, that you're fallible and you're human. <clears throat> and that we're all susceptible to having some mental health issues and feeling the strain. And as the leader, you're not only dealing with whatever's going on with the pandemic, for example, but you're having to lead through the pandemic also. And although you may have that temptation to always appear strong uh, and um, unbreakable, you're not. Nobody is, is that strong and that um, uh, impervious to to problems and sometimes it's really helpful for your people that you're leading to see that you are human also and that you know you're you're struggling as well and that we're all in this together sometimes that can be a very endearing quality uh to to have the leader be seen as okay i'm making mistakes when i make mistakes and i make a lot of them trust me i'm actually quite good at it um i, I like to be very uh advertising of it here's a mistake i made and here's why i think i made the mistake and here's what i've learned and i think as a leader i hope that that makes me more approachable and helps others to feel like they can also admit their mistakes there's this temptation in medicine that you always have to be right and especially as a junior uh doctor or a clinician that if you make a mistake, oh my gosh, it's the end of the world. It's not, we all make mistakes and we all learn and we all grow. And the more that we can actually share our mistakes with each other and grow from them, the better we are. And so being human is a very important part of being a leader, especially when you're leading through a crisis. So where do you see the leadership in the medicine and academia also going from here? Well, I think the more that we can embrace diversity, uh, the better. I think that's really at the heart of everything, that we need divergent opinions, viewpoints, um, and having those honest conversations where everyone's viewpoint and perspective is, is, uh, is respected. I, I think that's really important. I, I think constantly assessing and reassessing your group and seeing, are we, are we functioning well? What does it, quote unquote, feel like? And I know that sounds really wishy-washy, but are people walking out of the room feeling like, that was a really good meeting? Or I really like how that pushed me a little bit to, to open my eyes and, and really evaluate something. I like, that was a unique meeting. We really got a lot out of that. That's what I look for when people are walking out of the room. What's that feeling when you walk out of the room? Or <laughs> are people walking out of the room, not making eye contact with each other, mm. talking under their breath? Um, not saying a word. Those are those are not so great meetings, and you got to be able to be mindful that your same group might go through phases where they have really good meetings and really bad meetings. Uh, and just when you think you've got it down, it may not be so down uh, in a good way. So you you got to you got to be able to call that out and be open to it. Not get too frustrated with your group, and understand it's going to go through ups and downs, there's ebbs and flows and everything. I mean, the great irony of me writing this book and have it, having it come out now is that right now in my leadership, I feel like I'm not terribly effective, that I've had a really tough year. And as a growth, uh, a personal growth thing, that's been incredibly helpful. So the sequel to the book is, is going to be titled 
<laughs> mistakes I've made in, in academic medicine or lessons learned in <laughs> academic medicine, because man, it's, it's just, it seems so ironic to me right now that this book is coming out when I, I don't feel particularly effective as a leader. So you've got to realize that you're going to have ebbs and flows in your, in your leadership and in your group. And that's natural. And you just embrace it. You, you, uh, you learn from it and you move on in a positive way. So do you think there should be more education, even formal education in academia and medicine environment of the more like people skills um, as compared to, for example, business and finance sectors? Somehow in our sectors, there's a bit of a reluctance to learn these skills. I don't know that there's a reluctance to learn it. It's just not emphasized or taught. Mm -hmm. So you know, there, there were and are no leadership uh, courses that I know of in medical school. Uh, there are none in residency. There are, are none for faculty uh, that I, I know of that are formally taught at institutions. There are certainly courses that people can go to uh, in the U.S. that are taught through various uh, bodies, and some of them are, are better than others. But I've taken some of those courses and very few of them actually talk about the principles that you and I have talked about today. They talk you know, a lot about the business or they talk about uh, how, to, how to read a spreadsheet, uh, your profit and loss columns. They don't talk about how to have an effective meeting or how to deal with a difficult faculty member or, or, or a, a struggling resident or, or how to uh, foster a good... Uh, conversation. I think that there's so much to be gained by this, uh, by putting into a formal curriculum at, at every institution, uh, at every level, starting at the medical student level, and really grooming that. And then, you know, really investing in your senior leaders, making sure your chairs and your vice presidents of the hospital and your deans are effective in their job, and that they are you know, having retreats and learning from each other and, and growing in a positive way and really looking at themselves critically. I, I think we have so much to be gained by this uh, because it's absolutely lacking in most institutions. Um, and, I, and I think it would be tremendously beneficial. Well, you turned your Facebook posts into the book and now you're going to be receiving emails from our listeners asking to turn your book into the course. <laughs> that sounds great to me. So now just reflecting a little bit on the bigger picture. So why is it important then for us to nurture the good, leader good uh, leadership in medicine for all of our society, basically, and patients and institutions? Well, that's a really broad question. Um, I, I, I think the patient is what's at the center of everything that we do in medicine. And I know that's stating the obvious, but the education that we do is so that we educate people to be better clinicians and take care of patients in the future. The research that we do is aimed towards providing better treatments and care for our patients and diagnoses. And so as we develop good leaders that are able to lead effectively in those spaces, it naturally helps everybody to gravitate back toward the patient uh, in a meaningful way. I think it's easier to talk about the absence of leadership or uh, ineffective leadership as a um, albatross around our neck that has prevented us from being 
more successful in medicine that, you know, people get so used to, um, you know, things not working well. They're like, oh yeah, it's just the way things are in medicine. Yeah, you know, it's very easy to point fingers at the hospital administration and say, oh, they, they really stink and they don't care about us. And that's a trap, right? You, you can say, well, yeah, okay, maybe it's that they don't care about us or maybe they just don't know us very well. Maybe they don't uh, have effective communication from our leadership, uh, the rep representatives to say, oh, I didn't realize that those people are struggling. <laughs> and if they're struggling, that's not gonna be great for the medical center. And if their morale is not good or if they leave because they're unhappy, that's not great either that you, you, know, you can't recruit and retain and have great people. You, you don't reach your full potential. I think there's a tremendous amount of that in medicine and particularly in academic medicine, that there's a lot of burnout and there's a lot of um, uh, large lack of fulfillment that people feel. And that's, I think, directly related to the fact that there's often a lack of leadership uh, or understanding from the leadership of what's needed in the day-to-day -day lives of the clinician, the educator, the researcher. Um, and so that, I think it's a, a really wonderful opportunity to for people to look at themselves and their institutions and say, are we leading people effectively? What can we do better that will make incremental uh, gains and make people happier in their roles and they won't leave uh, and they'll be more productive. And what discoveries in your journey to writing your book, uh, Successful Leadership in Academic Medicine, surprised you the most? Um, I'm not sure what I would say surprised me the most in my journey on this. I think what surprised me the most is that there is just nothing else out there uh, on this. That these are what, what, what I wrote, you know, as I wrote this book, and I had tremendous imposter syndrome as I was writing this book, uh, thinking, gosh, who am I to be saying these things to, to other people? They were all practical things. This is all what I would call low-hanging fruit. I didn't write anything earth-shattering or terribly intelligent. I'm, I'm not that smart a person. Um, but I'm a very practical and common sense person. And I thought, well, there's just so much impracticality out there. And there's so much... Um, so many opportunities to use common sense and practical solutions that people just aren't doing. And I said, let me sit down and write the obvious. <laughs> let me put things down on paper that it seems like are pretty obvious to me that just a lot of people aren't doing, that would be easy fixes. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I gave up the battle long ago of being an intelligent person, but I've got to realize that I'm a practical person. And I think if I can give people practical solutions, maybe that'll help people. Oh gosh, I admire your humility. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're wrong a lot of times, you become pretty hum uh, humble in the process. So do you do team building exercises? What would be your idea of sort of the best one? Would you just drop your team in the wilderness somewhere and leave them for a week? Uh, no, because I don't like the wilderness myself. I, mean, I don't really like bugs, uh, so I, <laughs> I wouldn't do that to other people. Um, but all kidding aside, I, I really like retreats. And, um, and I think that there are a couple of ways to do retreats. But one that I really like uh, is to make sure you have a, a defined number of people. You can't have a retreat of 50 people, but you can have a really effective retreat of 10 to 15 people. And a full day retreat can be really effective. And you spend the first half 
of the retreat, just really getting to know each other. And the second half around one, maybe two very specific but important goals. The first half with the getting to know each other is not just, oh, my name's Dave and I'm from Florida and I like basketball and I'm a neurologist. Uh, it's what motivates you? What, tell me about your journey. Tell me about your failures. Tell me about the things that have held you back. You know, I didn't get into medical school the first time I applied. Uh, and now I'm a chairman of a department. That was really hard for me. I almost failed out of medical school in my first year. I remember being in tears with my father. Uh, and he was telling me, you know, you'll, you'll be okay. You'll get through it. But it wasn't an easy journey for me. And people are very surprised when they hear that because, again, I'm a chairman of a department now. But, I, it, you know, th that's a very personal story. And you get people to open up like that. Then you really start to know each other better. And everybody's got a story. Nobody's had it hunky-dory from day one. And then you start to develop the trust with each other. When you've opened up a little bit, you've made yourself somewhat vulnerable and you realize, okay, what, what really motivates that person? People love that in the retreats. It's always going to be the most memorable and effective thing uh, for people as they, they walk out of the retreats. And then the goal-oriented part of it also. Okay, let's now let's sink our, our, our teeth into a really juicy and important topic that we can do something meaningful. And we'll come back to it uh, in three to six months and see how we're doing. So that's the kind of team building thing that I like, but not in the wilderness, uh, Galena. I'll be, I'll be clear with you about that. Yeah, too many bugs, too many mosquitoes. Right. Well, this has been a very constructive and informative discussion. So what are you focusing on now and what will be your next project? Yeah, so I, I mentioned it a little bit earlier on, but I'd love to write a sequel uh, that's not so rosy. Uh, that's talking about all the mistakes that one can make in leadership and what do you learn from them? I think that would be very effective uh, for people uh, if, the, uh, if the first book does okay. It'd be nice to have a sequel that kind of really dives into some of the problematic areas for people, uh, not just talking about general principles, which I did in the first book, but really you know, mistakes made and maybe do case studies where we say, okay, here's something that, you know, very real that happened uh, that didn't go so well and how do you dissect it and find a good course out of it. So I think that would be my next uh, fun project, uh, unless uh, uh, I get fired by uh, Cambridge University Press, <laughs> which I hope I don't. I hope the first book does well. Mm, love it. I hope you come and talk to us about it once it's done. I hope you invite me. So what would be the best way for our listeners to find more information about your work and also your book? Uh, well, uh, they can certainly uh, go to the website for Cambridge University Press, uh, and it's listed there, but they can also feel free to email me directly at dgreer, that's G-R-E-E-R, -E -E at B-U dot E-D-U. I'm happy to receive any emails, and uh, uh, I, I tend to be fairly quick on the responses, so I, I'd love for people to reach out if they need me. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining me today. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me.